Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host in Eldor Grace South Bay. Each week we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss how to live out our faith as Christians in Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on our sermon series from Leviticus. In a sermon titled Consumed, Pastor Stephen unpacks the startling death of Aaron's sons when these rookie priests failed to follow God's instructions. Why did God kill them? Was his penalty too harsh? We'll discuss those questions and more today as we dive into Leviticus chapter 10. We're talking about strange fire, God's rules, and sanctification. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So, Stephen, can you recap for our listeners what happens in this passage? Sure. Uh, the short version is that right after Aaron and his sons finish offering the sacrifices on the eighth day of their uh, purification ceremony, uh, two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, do something uh, displeasing to God. They break the rules of the priests, and so he sends down fire to consume them. Uh Aaron and his remaining sons are told not to participate in the uh, funeral services, the burial proceedings, or even mourning, and Moses has uh, their cousins come and carry out their bodies, and the rest of Israel mourns the loss of these two priests, and then Moses comes back to check on the rest of the priests and their functions, and if they've done everything correctly. He sees they haven't, uh, mm-hmm. but Aaron explains why they've done what they've done, and Moses understands and says, that's a great thing, it's okay, don't worry about it, and the story ends. And it, and it doesn't end well <laughs> for, for at least the two sons. No. I shouldn't laugh about it. It would be absolutely awful uh, putting myself in the place of Aaron. Um, at, at the center of the this episode and the violation that that caused God to kill them was this notion of strange fire. What what was strange fire? Sure. So it's actually a, a strange, is somewhat a, of a debated term. Uh, there are multiple connotations that that Hebrew word translated strange can have. Uh, it can be estranged, like mm-hmm. separated, um, or. Uh, separate as in like foreign from an enemy nation, or it could be strange as in odd or unexpected. Mm-hmm. And so the ambiguity of that term has led to a diversity of suspicions about what actually happened. Uh, some people would argue that they used coals for the incense that they brought in from uh, pagan worship festivals or just mm. a normal everyday hearth instead of fire from the altar out in front of the tabernacle. Uh, some said that they're doing something that they shouldn't have been done, maybe doing offering some kind of uh, ceremonial act from other traditions, maybe they, something they picked up when they were in Egypt, inside of the tabernacle, um, things that w- was inappropriate to do in the worship of God. Um, I think the thing that is key for us to understand, uh, the smoking gun comes from God's own words in Leviticus 16, where he starts the chapter by warning Aaron not to enter into the Holy of Holies like his sons had. Hmm. So it seems that whatever they had with them 
one of the key problems was that they went into the innermost part of the tabernacle, a place that they should not have gone. And before anybody says, ah, oh, they, they didn't know it was just an accident, they spent seven days going mm. over all of the rules, day in and day out, being purified and, and smeared in blood and told, this is what it looks like to be a priest, and immediately they did the thing they shouldn't do. So, and, that, and clearly they, they violated one of the rules for sure, but, but why was God's punishment so harsh? I mean, did he, did he overreact in this case? Uh, it seems that way, doesn't it, to us? Uh, you know, it's like if I told my daughter not to jump on my lap, and mm. I was sitting on the couch, and she did, um, instead of, like, picking her up and setting her on the couch, if I threw her across the room, right. that's what this seems like, but that's that's not exactly what's happening. Um, the restrictions that God places on his home, the tabernacle, communicate something about the separation between God and man, right? Because God is holy... Even though he's choosing to dwell among his people, there is still a problem because sin cannot exist in the presence of holiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, God doesn't put up all of these blockades, the fence, the gate, the outer sanctuary, the, the veil between the outer and the inner sanctuary, because he has privacy issues. Mm-hmm. It's because there has to be separation. He is really protecting the people from coming into his presence and dying. Holiness and sinfulness cannot coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a reverence that God is due, not because he is full of himself, but because he is who he is, right? I think a good way, uh, a good analogy uh, for this is like those bug zappers, you know, the like yeah, electric sure. tennis rackets? Yeah, It has batteries awesome. in it, right? You push <laughs> yeah. the button, it sends electrical current through the metal bars on the tennis racket. Mm. And when something conductive touches it, whether it is a fly or it is the toe of your sleeping brother, the electricity <laughs> is going to de- discharge, right? Yeah, it's not right. because that, you know, the tennis racket hates the fly or it hates mm. your brother's toe, mm-hmm. but simply because that's how electricity works. Mm. Holiness is, is somewhat the same way. There's enough in Scripture, I think, for us to believe that when sin enters into the presence of holiness, holiness consumes sin, period. Hmm. So it's not like a... Uh, God God wasn't just angry that they came in without knocking, mm-hmm. but hmm. holiness consumes sin. All right, so I know we've talked about this in a previous podcast, but just because, it, again, it's such a, an important part of, this, of understanding this passage. When we say that God is holy, what do we mean? Yeah, we, d- we did talk about this, and uh, the simple definition that I gave was set apart. Holiness means there is a difference between this thing and all other things, and, and we said that uh, part of God's holiness comes from His eternality, mm-hmm. the fact that God has always existed, and that everything else that exists was uh, His creation. So everything mm-hmm. has come into existence through Him. That makes Him authoritative and, and, and special, if you will, it, unique. Another part of his holiness is his perfection. God has never done anything contrary to his character, and that sets him apart as well. And so holiness has multiple aspects to it, but I think those two things are helpful for us to see when it comes to this passage, that God is eternal, and all things were created by him and through him, and God is perfect and pure in that he's never done anything contrary to his character. 
Okay, so that's holiness. There's a couple of other terms that I think are important to understand in this passage. Uh, one is sanctification. So what, what does being sanctified mean? Sure. This, this comes in a unique way in this passage. We're talking about Moses' reaction to the death of his nephews. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Leviticus 10, verse 3, he says, uh, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. That's a kind of a cold way to respond yeah, when yeah. you um, watch your nephews get consumed by fire. Yes. Uh, the term sanctified means to be made holy. And what God is saying through Moses here is that there is a particular way in which God's people have been instructed to live and dwell in the presence of God, how they should interact with him. And the way to classify that response is holy. You shall be holy as God is holy. You shall treat God as holy and behave in a holy way toward him. So what Moses is saying here is God has said, if anybody tries to engage with me in a inferior way, in a lower response than what I have told you is required, it will be corrected. People will respond the way that I have asked them to respond. And again, just so we're all on the same page, this is not God being, uh, you know, petty or, mm-hmm. you know, egotistical, but there is a protection that he is in, enlisting by, at, by having people respond to him in a certain way, because holiness consumes sinfulness. And mm-hmm. so in requiring people to come to him in a holy way, he is protecting people. So you mentioned sanctified. The other word used in this passage, the one you just quoted, was glorified. So what does glorified mean? Sure. So obviously there's a difference uh, in the sense that Moses says, among those who are near me, I will be Mm -hmm. sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So uh, to be proclaimed glorious is what glorified means, or wonderful, or awesome, Uh, As opposed to sanctified, glorified has more to do with uh, what you say and how you respond. Uh, Sanctified has more to do with posture and approach. And so there is a a presentation of self that God is talking about with glorified. And so the way he responds to people will uh, draw out a reaction of awe or wonder, uh, people will know him to be glorious through his response. And that seems odd, because he just killed these two people. Uh, But the reality is, he is, again, projecting and proclaiming his holiness in this act, and that Mm -hmm. is going to lead people to go, wow, there's something powerful and special about that God. There is something powerful and special about this God, um, but let's go back to this idea of him killing these these two people. Uh, do we need to tiptoe around this kind of a God, knowing that he could strike us dead at any moment? I mean, should we be afraid to mess up? Yeah, I mean, the great smiter in the sky, right? The great right? smiter in uh, the sky. <laughs> you know, I, I think a dose of that might do a lot of good for most of us. Um, Proverbs <laughs> a little 9, bit, sure, yeah. Yeah, Proverbs 9, verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, mm. But uh, reality is, for us, on this side of the cross, the answer is ultimately no. Mm -hmm. The wrath of God against sin has been dispensed fully against Jesus. Mm. Uh, The separation due to our sin between God and us has been removed. And so the fear or intimidation we might feel uh, should be set in its appropriate context of the cross, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think Tim Keller has this great quote that says that um, no one would dare wake up the king at 2 a.m. for a drink of water except his son. Mm, and yeah. that's that's exactly how we should recognize uh, our relationship with God, because of the mm-hmm. cross. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't due uh, honor and glory and holiness. Mm-hmm. It just means that our fear of coming before Him has been assuaged by the punishment taken on our behalf. Yeah, and that's and it's really comforting to know that it's still not probably wise to go around, you know, <laughs> defying God and say, I dare you, God, to strike me dead. It's like, ah, I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. All right. Um, so this, this is kind of a deeper sort of theological question for you. We want to do that occasionally on this podcast, uh, if not every time. Uh, so why didn't God create humans with a better capacity to obey? <laughs> uh, you know, there's this guy that used to be in our congregation, James Gibson. I don't know if you remember him. I remember but, James, uh, sure. Yeah, he yeah. was a, he had a PhD in philosophy, and we would get into conversations like this all the time. Hmm. Um, but the reality is that there would be something very clearly controlling, and in some way unloving, if God just forced us to obey. And something clearly wrong if God forced us to disobey. And so Scripture tells us that God created humans in a state of, of free will, right? Commonly referred to by theologians as passe peccare, passe non peccare. Mm. Possible to sin, possible not to sin. Right. Right? The ability to freely choose is loving and yet dangerous for God. Dangerous yes. because it gives creatures the possibility to reject and rebel the, against the Creator. And yet, God did it anyway. God knew Adam and Eve would choose not to listen. He knew he would have to step in and and take the punishment on himself. He agreed, the Trinity agreed that would happen before creation, uh, that all of humanity would be plunged into the reality of non-passe, non-pecare, mm. not possible, not to sin. Yeah. Um, and so, the you know... The reality of life is it was it was a loving act to l- let us choose to obey or not obey, and uh, we chose poorly. Mm-hmm. You chose poorly. Well, the reality in this in this particular passage that we looked at, uh, we actually have two instances recorded here of the priests not getting it right. So, my question to you: Were they not? taking their instructions seriously? Were they just dense, or maybe they had ADD? <laughs> you know, it's possible. Um, there was no dsm four back then, so they exactly. couldn't right, figure out right. their mental uh, you know, capacity or whatever. But um, I, I think there's enough evidence for us to understand a little bit about what's going on. We're not given any reasons for why Nadab and Abihu mess up, mm-hmm. um, but we are for the response of Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the other priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, they recognize that something had gone wrong, that that the their brothers had failed and that God had punished them. And so their, their own frailty, their own sinfulness is right in front of their face, and their situation as intermediaries between God and people is very precarious and mm-hmm. serious. And so they choose to offer the sacrifices in a way that they know is pleasing, but not consume them for fear of messing up, right? And as we said, fear of God 
is an appropriate response. And that's what mm-hmm. Moses says when Aaron explains his actions, because of what has happened to me this day, this is how we responded. Mm-hmm. Moses says, okay, that's good. And I think that their failure to do as they had been instructed is set against the failure of Nadab and Abihu, which seems to suggest that there was a presumptuousness, an arrogance, maybe it's ignorance, uh, but they thought that they were going to a place where they belonged. They entered into this uh, holy of holies, into God's presence presumptuously. We're, we deserve to be here. And so I, I think that there is a, a hard heartedness that is suggested. I, I, this is not, you know, confirmed in Scripture anywhere, but right. this is me thinking, based on what we see from the two examples, there is a hard-heartedness in Nadab and Abihu going, we know what's right, mm-hmm. and a, a concern from Aaron, Ithamar, and Eleazar. We're not, we're not totally sure, but this is what God has told us to do, so we're just going to do that. And I think that that is two mm. different examples of how we respond to God. Well, let's go back to this notion of impossible not to sin, which you mm-hmm. mentioned a minute ago. Um, if it's not possible to follow the rules, how can we be held responsible? And one of the things we've talked about as parents is, is this a can't or is it a won't? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, Matt, it's both. Uh, we can't obey, and we won't obey. Hmm. Uh, we're both, uh, we both commit sin and are sinners. In other words, there is a guilt that we can't control. We inherit it by being born. Under mm-hmm. Adam is what the, the Bible calls it. We are, are guilty because of our lineage, but we also bring about guilt in ourselves by doing bad things and not mm-hmm. doing good things, right? If, if there was some way to be born perfect and, and never sinning, we still would sin mm-hmm. and bring—sorry, uh, uh, let me say that again. If, if we were perfect and never sin, we're mm-hmm. still born with the guilt of our fathers. If there was some way to be born without the guilt of our fathers— we would still sin and bring guilt upon ourselves. There's no way out. Hmm. The reality is, though, it is still a choice that was made. And so many times people think, well, if I had been in the garden instead of Adam, I would have chosen differently. But the Bible says that Adam and Eve were perfect representatives of us. And so they behaved as each one of us would have behaved. Hmm. We all would have chosen not to listen to the Word of God and have eaten the fruit. So this passage talks about the nature of the relationship between God and his people, um, but uh, how did Jesus change our relationship with God? <laughs> oh, man, how much, how much time do how we much have? How much time do we have? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a, that's a big... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in the sense of what we're talking about, right? right exactly. His, his exactly. obedience is credited to us, and our guilt is applied to him, which means that the close, intimate, personal relationship that Jesus has experienced with his Father from before all creation is now ours. And the punishment and the guilt and and everything that we deserve because of our sin was put on him on the cross. So there is a, a reconciliation between those who are in Jesus and God because of what Jesus has done for us, right? There is the, the punishment that Nadab and Abihu received, Jesus received. The 
only so much worse because he did nothing to deserve it, mm-hmm. right? And and the reality is the grace and the the righteous, the earned favor of Jesus is ours, which we don't deserve because we didn't earn it, but he gives mm-hmm. it to us freely. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that the Tim Keller quote a minute ago about no one can wake up the king at three o'clock in the morning for a glass of water unless you're the, 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 the child, sun. yeah, the son, right? Um, so let me ask you this. How do we come boldly before the throne of grace and before God, but with reverence? Uh, it's a simultaneous uh, recognition that uh, we have direct access through Jesus. Um, his, in his earthly life, Jesus spoke to God the Father in a way that no one else ever had. He was very close, very familiar, like his child, as his mm-hmm. child, you know, like we were saying. Um, that's the relationship that we're given. That's boldness, right? To ask uh, for whatever our heart's desire is, to question, to cry out, to doubt, as a child can. Mm-hmm. But simultaneously, a humility and a reverence knowing that we don't belong here. There is a, a gratefulness and a humility that comes from knowing we're out of place and yet being in place. It's mm-hmm. so strange. It's there's a tension, right? This is yeah. the gospel is full of tension, and this tension is palpable often uh, when we, especially for me, when I think about communion, when we come before mm. the Lord's Supper, uh, there is a reality of I do not deserve to be here, and yet here. I am at the family feast, and my name is on a nameplate. Do you think that we become a little too casual around God? Um, Yes and no. You know, I I think that Mm -hmm. in some ways we've lost uh, perspective of His holiness. We've lost some reverence. We have become uh, subtly... Agree. We've subtly agreed with the rea- with the idea of deism. You know that mm-hmm. we talked about this in another podcast as well. Mm-hmm. That he's just out there, not really involved, uh, and so that kind of leads us to not think so highly of him. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I think that there's a sense in which we take that for granted um, that we have access to supreme holiness, mm-hmm. uh, but no, in the sense that. Our mentality towards ourselves, particularly in our culture, in our in Silicon Valley, is uh, is highly critical, and mm-hmm. uh, the assumption that everyone sees us uh, just as awfully as we see ourselves. They, everybody mm-hmm. knows that we're a failure, or they're thinking critically of us just as we think of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, who would want such an awful friend, an awful employee, a spouse like me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we take that to the utmost degree and say, certainly God, God doesn't want me to be around. Um, and the reality is, no, God wants you around just as you are. You do not mm-hmm. have to uh, pretty yourself up and wear your, your nicest evening gown to come before God. He wants to hear from you and meet with you just as you are. Yeah. And that's super, super comforting to to, to know that. Uh, one of the things that comes out in this passage, too, is this, again, we talk, we've been talking about holiness a lot, uh, but you mentioned in your sermon that holy living is connected to abundant life. 
How so? Ah, yes. Connecting Sermon yeah, Series. Look exactly. at this. Look Abundant at this. Life, exactly. We had a whole series um, about this. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the natural thought for people, particularly people outside the church, but definitely for those of us inside the church as well, mm. is that if I want Abundant Life, I have to live a holy life first. Mm. I got to do all the right things, and then life will be good. And what we see is an inverse relationship. That Abundant Life in Jesus leads us to long for a holy life. Right, so hmm. there, there, there's this economic principle called the law of diminishing marginal utility, and and to put it simply, when it's lunchtime, the first Doritos Locos Taco that you eat is amazing, but then <laughs> the second one is a little less amazing, the third hmm. and the fourth and so on. Right? Okay. When right. you experience abundant life in Jesus, when you receive it from Him, sin starts to feel less desirable, not as hmm. exciting. It's not as satisfying. And it doesn't seem to provide you as much enjoyment or comfort or stability as it used to. And so the more abundant life you experience, which is gifted to you by Jesus, the less and less unholy living seems appealing. So there's this connection of, I receive abundant life through Jesus, and the things of this earth, as the hymn goes, grow strangely dim. They're yeah. not as bright, they're not as beautiful, uh, not because they aren't, but because there is something so much better, so much more beautiful, mm-hmm. um, and that's how abundant life and holy life are, are connected. And how does uh, repentance figure into this whole thing, and um, how do we do it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, to borrow the phrase from the hit Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, uh <laughs> Repentance is the way. This is the way. Um, this is the, the, the rhythm of, of following Jesus that we've been given, hmm. uh, which is to recognize that sin and guilt are uh, slave masters, and so when we sin, we are trapped, um, not in the sense that we are now going to be punished uh, because Jesus has taken our punishment for, for us, but in the sense that it weighs us down, and it, ter- it causes us to look for life and freedom elsewhere. But repentance actually frees us from guilt and from sin. Uh, there, in I think it's Romans, Paul says that godly guilt leads to repentance unto life. And, and freedom is the root of this. And so repentance leads us to freedom, and freedom gives us the capacity to say, I don't want to do that thing anymore. Mm. Will you, friend, brother, help me not sin in this way? Uh, you know, this is, this is what... And so the, repentance, of course, has two parts. We've talked about this before as well. Saying sorry for what you have done and turning away from your sin to live in a different way, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, on Sunday mornings, we go through these the uh, time of renewal where we confess our sins together, silently confess our sin, and then there is an assurance of pardon, uh, you know, proclaimed from Scripture, um, showing us that those sins have been taken care of. And so now, as we say at the end of the service, we go out to live uh, Mm -hmm. and serve, love and serve, uh, as we have been loved and served, right? There is a changing of behavior in addition to an apology. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so those are those are the the sins that we have done, left undone, and so forth. Um, but the last question to you for, for this is, what about those sins done unto us? Um, why should we forgive? And is there a good way to do this? Oh yeah. So uh, the Bible tells us very simply: those who have been forgiven uh, much, forgive much. So there's mm. a, a command. 
Um, but also, like again, freedom, right? For those who are following Jesus, we have been set free from guilt and shame. And what we know very clearly uh, is that, that guilt and shame twist and distort and destroy lives. Mm-hmm. And so in particular, people who uh, are bold enough to come to us and apologize for what they've done, we have as free people, people who have been set free by Jesus, we have mm-hmm. the keys to set them free in forgiveness. And the loving thing for us to do is to forgive the person of what they've done. Now, again, mm. relational dynamics are, are difficult. It doesn't mean that we just all of a sudden go back to a happy relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. We have to be as wise as serpents. And so we have to know that uh, there are some offenses that do damage and Mm -hmm. relationships are broken. But forgiveness still sets a person free to be able to change the way that they live, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a good way to do this is to... uh, We have started with our girls when we ask them to apologize to each other, or I apologize to them, or someone else apologizes to them, uh, to not say, as most of us do, oh, it's okay, or don't worry Mm -hmm, about it, mm -hmm. but to actually use the words... I forgive you. And mm. the reason is because uh, forgiveness is actually uh, the person who was offended or hurt then has to absorb that pain. Mm-hmm. It's no longer held out over the other person. It is an absorption. And so there is a, a an importance to actually using the words, I forgive you, which is why we proclaim forgiveness on Sunday mornings in our renewal. And don't just mm-hmm. say, great, we, we all confess, let's move on. Right. But we need to hear God saying, you have been set free. Your transgressions have been removed. I am the one who absorbs the pain and the punishment that you deserve. You are mm-hmm. forgiven. Mm. And, and as you mentioned, when we forgive, we're also set free because we're not carrying around the weight of, of this idea, of, and, and we're tortured by it, that we also achieve freedom too. Yes, there, it's the first step in healing any wound that has been created. Yeah, well, great. So this was a, another great sermon, uh, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time this morning. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. The title of Stephen's sermon is Consumed. It's one of the sermons in our series from Leviticus. You can find that sermon and all our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. We hope these conversations are helping you develop a closer relationship with Jesus. If you have questions about the Christian faith or just need someone to talk to, we've got pastors, elders, youth leaders, and a women's care team ready to help. We're just an email or a phone call away. If you have a prayer request, you can go directly to our website, gracesouthbay.com, and submit your requests using the prayer button at the top of the website. And if you're new to Grace South Bay, we would encourage you to fill out the Connect card, and one of our pastors will reach out to you. And of course, we'd love to have you join us for Sunday morning worship. We meet at 9 a.m. at Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose. We look forward to our next time together on another episode of the GSP Podcast. So stay tuned and stay connected to be encouraged knowing that nothing can separate you from God's love. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.